Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for this morning is from Luke 3, 1 through 18. It is not correct in your bulletin, but it is correct on the screen. So, look up. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ah, John the Baptist. The radical cousin of Jesus who lives in the woods and eats bugs and shouts at people walking by. What a buzzkill, right? John's birth story is well documented in Luke. 
He was born too late to parents too old. He, the patron saint of spiritual joy, if you can believe it. And perhaps it's because of the event when his elderly pregnant mother encountered a pregnant Mary and he leapt for joy in her womb, being in close proximity to the coming Messiah. And due to his miraculous birth story, nearly as miraculous as Jesus' own arrival, people saw him as a sign of God's work in the world. The expectations were high for his family. What would John grow up to do? His parents might have wondered as his mother's belly grew. Would he serve as a priest, helping cultivate connection to God for his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters? Would he make an impact in the humble service of carpentry like his cousin? Or would he be like Simeon and Anna, prophets residing in the temple, ushering in God's presence? Well, imagine his parents' disappointment, that he was loud and at times obnoxious and rude, shouting at the very religious leaders they were hoping he would emulate. His call was to prepare the way for the one to come, who we would understand to be Jesus. And so John lives off the radar, in the woods, where crowds gather and surprisingly want to hear what he has to say. Now, not one for hospitality, he shouts at them, you brood of vipers who warned you of the coming wrath. We don't have any Christmas carols that say that, but we should. He tells them to bear fruit worthy of repentance, and he calls out their self-justification, their claims of, well, we have Abraham as our ancestor, so I think we'll be fine. Or our family has a lot of history around these parts, or our roots go deep, so maybe slow your roll, Johnny boy. He then tells them something audacious, them being the very religious persons, the VRPs. He says that you cannot dismiss God's ongoing call on your life in some kind of appeal to heritage. John points to the stones nearby, and he says, heritage? Ha! God can make these stones the sons and daughters of Abraham, if God needs to. And he tells them the axe is waiting to be pulled back to chop down the tree with deep roots they boast about. Now, I can imagine the people in the crowd, like, shifting uncomfortably, like, we came all the way out here for this? But miraculously, the people are curious about this confrontation. Well, John, so what should we do then? How do we bear fruit worthy of repentance? How do we avoid the coming wrath? And so he proclaimed the good news to the people. The text ends. I don't know what you heard as I was reading the scripture earlier, but a lot of it did not feel like good news. Not sure where Luke got that idea. Except, perhaps, we should think about the concept of good news. We are people of the good news, more specifically the gospel, which comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism. So what qualifies as good news anyway? It's good to interrogate this idea every once in a while, and every time I do, I learn something about science and really risk looking like a fool up here trying to explain a scientific fact. So here we go. So let's start with the word news. So news does not necessarily equate information. Okay, take for example this fun fact. The species of fungus in the genus Penicillium, known as Penicillium rubens, inhibits the growth of the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus. Now that fact is certainly information that may have flown over your head, but it has nothing to do with me this morning. 
So what am I supposed to do with that information? Because it's not news. Because news is not simply information. It has to be relevant to the one receiving it. So that means it needs to be contextual and specific. Now say I had a bacterial growth from the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus in my body, otherwise known as a staph infection. Now that information is news to me because it is contextual and it is specific to me and I did not know it before. But news also needs to be dependent on something. If I had a staph infection, I would be in a predicament. People die from staph infections, which is nuts because they are very easy to get. This information would become news that would require a response. What am I going to do about this staph infection? What are my options? If I choose to do nothing, that is still a response. And before we move on, news is not a direct equivalent to truth because something can be true but not news. If I found out three weeks ago that I had a staph infection and had since taken action to treat it, and you came up to me and told me today, Ashley, you have a staph infection. That would be true, but it wouldn't be news. It wouldn't require a response from me. I would no longer be in a predicament. And likewise, if you told your cousin in California that a person in Texas had a staph infection, but don't worry, you do not have a staph infection, that is not news to your cousin because it does not put your cousin in a predicament or require a response from him. My predicament does not affect your cousin. So news has to be contextual and specific and dependent on a response. But we also need to consider the credibility of the giver of the news. If a person walked up to me on the street and said, you have a staph infection, I would keep walking because what does that person know? I've never met them before. But if my doctor told me after a series of tests, then I would listen because she had done the due diligence to find out that information about me and deliver it. Now the person on the street could have been telling me the truth that I would later find out from my doctor. But because that person does not have credibility to deliver that news in my eyes, it is not news. And finally, the news has to be possible. If Staphylococcus aureus did not cause a staph infection, then a doctor telling me that I had a staph infection wouldn't be true. The news would be that the doctor should lose their license. So I think we've established what news is. So what about the good part? Well, that initial piece of information I gave you becomes relevant here. If the species of fungus called Penicillium rubens inhibits growth of the bacteria known as Staphylococcus aureus, then that means my staph infection can be treated easily with a medicine derived from that fungus, which is a medication we know today as penicillin. That is good news because it saves my life. It solves my predicament. It affects me directly. And not only is that information credible because it has been tested since the early 20th century, it is also very possible because penicillin is the most prevalent antibiotic in the world. So then, how is what John is saying, shouting, really, good news? Well, first, he acknowledges the specific context that the people are in. It's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of, Nuge of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee. These are names you may recognize from Jesus' story. 
And this tells us that what John has to say is taking place under the reign of powerful political rulers and servants of Rome. And there's another piece of contextual information that is relevant. John received his call from God during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which means that the work of John and ultimately Jesus is in opposition to the priestly hierarchy. So that not only is John going up against political powers, but also religious powers, which we know sometimes overlap. And John's call is borrowed from the prophet Isaiah to prepare the way of the Lord so that every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, a grand leveling, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, including those present in the religious assemblies and those absent. And John is speaking to the very religious people, the VRPs, And he says, not really a new thing, but reminds them of the religious call already on their life to repent and repair, to change what they have been doing for eons. He makes it clear that he sees no value in familial heritage. You've got family roots here, who cares? You've got history around these parts, doesn't matter. What matters is not what you've done or who your family is but what you are doing right now, what fruit you are producing right now in this very moment. His directions are concrete and practical. Build a home that requires everyone sharing. Establish relationships of trust, not interactions of manipulation or power imbalance. And the hard thing of what he is saying is that this building of a home for all requires some deconstruction John the Baptist is judgy as hell, but judgment does not necessarily equate with condemnation. To judge something means to see it clearly, and he's calling them to see clearly. He's calling them to notice the structures that are rotting, to notice when the institutions have compromised to survive, to notice which rituals and routines and traditions need to be repaired or reformed or put to rest. So this is definitely news, right? It's specific, it's contextual, it's contingent, it requires a response. And it comes from a credible source, one who is called by God, whose family line is priestly, who is Jewish to the bone, who is indeed the cousin of the promised one. But is it good news? It may not feel good to the very religious people, to the people who have memories of how things have always been, to the ones who have a stake in things remaining the same. It may feel like bad news. Trees cut down, winnowing forks, and unquenchable fire. But consider this. Penicillian Rubens is not good news to Staphylococcus aureus. That fungus kills the bacteria. But it is good news to the host of the bacteria, isn't it? And who is the ultimate receiver of John's news? It's not just the religious leaders. It's all flesh. 
It's those in the valleys. It's those in the rough parts. If we are truly making a home for all, that means some will not be privileged in a way that they are used to. It means that some will not be prioritized over others simply because they and their family have been around forever. It means that some will no longer be able to wield their power in their favor whenever they please. It means that some voices will not be given the mic anymore. But that is because other voices that have not been heard will finally be given space to speak. It means that power will be redistributed so that those with lots of power have some taken from them and it is given to those with no power. It means that those who have no history here or come from far away will be given equal, equal access. And it means that those who are routinely disenfranchised and overlooked and ignored and exploited will finally have their moment. So that all flesh will see the salvation of God. And here's the good news for us. We are all better for it when the mountains are laid low and the valleys are lifted. But most of us are mountain folk. That doesn't mean our lives haven't been difficult or we haven't had challenges or disadvantages. It just means that we haven't had to face those challenges in a floodplain. And us mountain folk, us very religious people, are called to pay attention to the structures that are rotting to notice when the institutions have compromised to survive, to discern which rituals and routines and traditions need to be repaired and reformed or put to rest. And that is no easy task. It is painful and difficult, and it's hard to see ourselves clearly. But it is a worthy task. It is a gospel task. And it is a truly Advent task. Sometimes good news feels like bad news until we zoom out and see it from the perspective of the reign of God. Now it's true that John the Baptist will always be a buzzkill no matter how you read him. But he's not saying anything that's not 100% bona fide gospel. And we rejoice because we are people of God. And we get to participate in the collective construction and repair of the world God wants if we say yes. Because wherever there is a leveling, wherever there is repair, wherever there is repentance, there is God. And where there is God, there is joy. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church Podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.